Philanthropology and the Good Road is brought to you by AMD, Advanced Micro Devices. Okay, so the song, the Thai song you just heard, was written by our good friend Carlos Chafin. Uh, lyrics and vocals by somebody you might not expect. Um, yep, that's Earl Bridges, our co-host. <laughs> and, um, and so in the first season of The Good Road, it just sets the perfect tone for Bangkok. But there's there's something, yeah. a little inside detail on that. <laughs> Earl, tell us. Well, I mean, is. first of all, I w- when we started down this road, it was not so that I could have some kind of Thai punk rock, you know, career going on. <laughs> However this is, happened. <laughs> well, it sounded like it. I mean, that's the only excuse for how poorly I sang it, you know, performed it. <laughs> but but what about the countdown? Tell me about the countdown. Oh yeah. Well, so instead of doing the traditional 5 4 3 2 1, Craig, since you speak Thai, I'll say the words in Thai and then you translate it, the numbers into English. Yeah. So the first one is bat. 8 6. Oh, sorry. Hulk. <laughs> sorry. Hulk. Hulk is <laughs> but six. it's basically bat hulk jet ha sam sun gao. So eight six seven five three zero nine, kind of a hearkening back to all those, you know, telephone uh, songs telephone back in the eighties. So that that set <laughs> yeah. us on the good road and started, you know, the the whole uh, series for us. Philanthropology is the companion piece to our TV show on public television called The Good Road. I'm Earl Bridges, and I'm Craig Martin, and we capture stories of mercenaries, missionaries, and misfits. It's a raw look at the messy and complicated business of global philanthropy. And Craig and I sit off around the world to places where people are doing good. It's Batman, not Superman. Check out The Good Road on your local PBS station starting in April. Okay, so we'll kick off our final episode, Episode 8, with a really important interview with our good friend and Vietnamese refugee, Vu Le. Yeah, so Vu just stepped out of his role as executive director of a large nonprofit. I think it's called Rainier Valley Corps or something, right? Or, yep, Rainier Valley Corps Rainier. out in the Seattle area. He's a funny and interesting guy, and he has a great insight into the world of nonprofits and then really why life can be a struggle within that space. Yep, and then and so then later we're going to do a, a quick fun thing that kind of ties the podcast back uh, with the TV show. So first, we want to enumerate the uh, top 10 things we learned or that intrigued us from the incredible participants in our first season of the podcast. Yeah, and then we'll have a a fun little road trips at the end. So stick through the the credits on that. Let's just jump right into it. So I followed Vu for a while, and he's funny and interesting. Yes, you told me about him, and I poked around his website and immediately knew that this was going to be a guy I would like. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about Vu's dad is that he had actually spent time in prison as a combatant on the losing side of the Vietnam War. Yeah, and I, and I thought that was, Earl, that was super compelling because considering your father and his, uh, you know, basically early career as a fighter pilot during the Vietnam War, that's just super interesting. Well, that's how we ended up in Thailand in the beginning. Was It was right around the Vietnam era, and Dad was fighting the North Vietnamese, you know, as a fighter pilot. But when Vu, Vu was younger, he fled Vietnam as an 8-year-old. So this was late 80s. Uh, Saigon fell in 70, 75. So, and he ended up uh, winding up in a refugee camp in the Philippines, I believe. Um, so we have an automatic connection with Vu. So it seems like there's an infinite amount of information uploaded to the Internet every day. 
Sometimes it's hard to know what's accurate or factual or believable. That's exactly why we love having The Great Courses Plus. This is valuable, in-depth content we can trust. This streaming service offers thousands of objective, unbiased lectures from respected professors who really know their stuff, offering their unique, expert perspectives on topics ranging from the science of evolution to the mysteries of human behavior, even how to learn a new language or how to cook, much, much more. And with the Great Courses Plus app, we can watch or listen anytime, anywhere. We highly recommend the course Understanding the Dark Side of Human Nature. This course tackles big questions. What is evil, and how can we be sure that we don't cause suffering? And an even bigger question, why do we kill? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the royal we with the whole why do we kill, right? Mm -hmm. It's a really great topic that you won't want to miss. So sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash thegoodroad. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash thegoodroad. All right. So, hey, so welcome to Philanthropology. This is our final episode, and we have a special guest, Voulet, who is, I think, one of the most, I would say, brilliant. I'm losing words. It's probably not brilliant, but there's some other word for to describe who he is. <laughs> I'll but, take brilliant. brilliant. But I'll tell yeah. you, Vu, I mean, I followed your blog for quite a while, even back when it used to be called Nonprofit you know, with Balls, and now it's Nonprofit AF. And you've always been one of those voices of clarity in this confusing cacophony of the nonprofit space where you just tell it like it is. So do me a favor, if you would, Vu, just to introduce yourself with your name and what your current, uh, I don't know, what what do you call yourself now? What's your title? Uh, Hi, everyone. It's Vu. I don't have a title right now. I I just write. So I guess I'm a a writer of nonprofitaf.com. But I used to be the executive director of uh, RBC, which was a capacity building and leadership organization in mm-hmm. Seattle. What does the AF stand for in nonprofit AF? It stands for and fearless. Nonprofit <laughs> and fearless. I knew it was going to be, you tricked us again. So, Vu, uh, because I'm kind of coming late to the game a little bit, give us a little bit of background. Just tell us your story. Yeah, I was born in Vietnam, and uh, my, my family, we left Vietnam in 89. And they came over here, and I, uh, I I was supposed to be a doctor, or maybe an engineer, or maybe a combination of a doctor and an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, decided to disappoint my parents by going into social work instead. <laughs> so I got my master's in social work and have been in the sector for, for a while. I worked with an organization called the Vietnamese Friendship Association, and then founded an organization called Rainier Valley Corps and have been an executive director for the last uh, 13 years or so, and just uh, just decided to take a break and spend more time with my family. Well, well, why would anyone take a break from this noble and dignified profession of being a, you know, executive director for a nonprofit? <laughs> I know, right? It's so much fun. <laughs> I kind of liken it to, like, eating your favorite ice cream, but you have to eat an entire gallon every single day. And you're, and you're lactose intolerant. Yeah, so there's there's just a lot to deal with. There's the funding dynamics. There's the fact that you have to deal with community uh, politics. And your staff are always on your case. They're great, but they're always like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you raise more money? And then there's the board. And just I think that just the constant uh, mixture of everything all together 
does burn out a lot of executive directors and other leaders in the sector. Well, you mentioned uh, in one of your recent podcasts, you you really made a case for uh, funders to fund sabbaticals. But what's the case for a sabbatical? I mean, in light of where you've been, why does this make any sense at all? First of all, I, I think sabbaticals should be extended to anyone who has been working for a long time. And the problem in the sector is that you don't have just you don't just have one job. You have like five different jobs that you combine. We have this saying that you wear many hats. Well, you're wearing many hats all the time, and I think right. it's important to be able to take off these hats once in a while and just reflect on what's going on. And there's been so much data out there that prove how effective sabbaticals can be, not just for the person who is taking a break, but also for the people who are at the organization because they get a chance to rise up and and try out some new leadership skills. Mm. It's good for everyone. Yeah, the succession planning side of it I thought was interesting as well. Like you say, someone steps aside, you step aside, say, for a sabbatical, and someone fills in that gap. And they do get to spread their wings a little bit more. And um, but then I got stuck on okay, well then how does that person come back? And then how do you like re-demote that person back to whatever menial task that they used to do? <laughs> how does that really work? Well, but that's the thing. I think the sabbaticals are great because it, it kind of forces us to reevaluate uh, this sort of structure that we have. We just we have this hierarchical model where we have one person at the top who is seen as this leader. This heroic leader who makes all the final decisions and everything. And then everyone else is in charge of menial tasks. Mm. And I think that we are moving we are moving away from this structure. We're starting to move into sort of more flat uh, organizational structures where power is more distributed. And in a way that's that's amazing because people burn out less and they have more autonomy and they feel more sense of ownership in, in the work. Well, my suspicion is that if we're following uh, for-profit, you know, uh, management, you know, change management ideals, and yet we're missing the profit component of it, that there's something wrong in that that algebra, you know? it's uh, So because we all know, I mean, having worked in and around the nonprofit space for such a long time, uh, it is tough. It's and and it's not well understood, I think, by the public at large. For how do you help these, you know, nonprofits? If people come at it from lots of different angles. You know, some people you know, look at it and they say, "Yeah, I really believe in that cause. It's great." You know, we get a bump here because Craig and I have this television show called The Good Road, and we tell these great stories. So, and dirty little secret: we're not actually doing anything. We're just telling other people's <laughs> stories. But you know, but they're like, "Yeah, we'd love to help you out." Uh, until it gets down to the nitty-gritty of, yeah, we'd like to help you out, but we don't want to pay for your travel, and we don't really want you guys to take a salary. And we'd like to put our money, but we'd like it to go directly to whatever is, you know, either in an individual or a foundation's kind of focus areas for that period of time. Yeah, I, I do think that we put up with a lot of this sort of BS, which is like, you know, I, I want we want to pay for this good work, but we don't want to pay for salaries mm-hmm. and professional development and rent and stuff. And I just think, what would happen if we actually pose the same sort of restrictions onto a, a for-profit? So the example I use is, like, imagine we have a, a bakery, and a customer comes in and says, I, I want to pay for a cake, and I will pay uh, just 10% of this cake. you got to find the other 90% because I don't pay 100% <laughs> of any cake. And also, of this, this, this $10 I'm giving you for this cake, I, you can only buy one stick of butter and one egg. And I don't want any of this money to use to be used on the on the electricity for your oven because that does not directly benefit 
the people who are eating this cake. I mean, this this is kind of what we deal with. Yeah, yeah. You could you, if you could come up with one cup of flour, we'll we'll do the matching gift for the other cup of flour. Or something. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous, but I, I do think that we complain about this a lot. But it is very serious. Hmm. And I'm using a new metaphor now, which is that we are like firefighters putting out the fires of injustice. And every three or four steps, someone stops us and, and says, um, I want to make sure the money I'm giving you to put out these fires are being spent on the water and not the hose. Right. <laughs> what is your hose-to-water ratio? Is it above 10%? And the reality is that the more that you do this, the more that we stop to answer these dumbass questions, mm-hmm. the less time that we are spending putting out the fires. So your dumbass questions are not just annoying, they are helping the fires of injustice spread. That's heavy. But, you know, so, so Vu, I'm curious, though, when you look at the corporate stru- uh, structures of an investor or a shareholder, um, and you look at the influence they have on the company versus uh, people who feel like they're just giving out of the generosity of their heart, or even your board, what are the nuanced differences between the two? Yeah, I, I do think we have to get out of this sort of philosophy that People who are who are buying stocks in a company, they're getting something, they're getting dividends out of it. Or people who buy uh, a product that's made by a for-profit, that they're getting a, a product. And donors and board members are just giving out of the goodness of their hearts. Like that is the narrative that has been perpetuated for a long time, and I think it is very destructive. I think that we have to get out of that sort of mindset. The mindset that we should be getting into is that we all benefit when they're are strong nonprofits who are doing their work effectively. Mm. So the people who are like, well, I'm only gi- I'm giving you money and I get nothing out of it. I'm like, no, you're getting a safe, safer, better, more uh, interesting society that you and your family live in. So no, this sort of philosophy that you just you just help people have the goodness of your heart that that just has to be ended. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you also. I mean, I've heard you not I, I, maybe it's too strong as a word to say railed against you know foundations for some of the practices that they have. And I've also seen you talk about the fact that a lot of foundations, they'll fund one year. They don't want to fund a second year. So I'm going to give you a soapbox, and you can stand right up on there and talk about whatever it is that you think. (laughs) Well, before I go on to my soapbox, I I, I do think there are lots of really great program officers, and there there are really great foundations that are trying really hard. So when I rail against people... It's against these systems that we have in place that are really uh, hamstringing the abilities of many nonprofits to do our work effectively. So one of those things is this entire grant application process. Let's say 100 organizations apply for a grant that is for $10,000, and they spend 10 hours. That's usually the minimum uh, that, that we will spend on, on a grant. So 100 people spending 10 hours is 1000 hours being spent. And let's say this organization only gives out 10 grants, so they give $100,000, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that means that 900 hours were spent doing this work that didn't lead to anything. Hmm. I multiply this by thousands of grants across the entire sector. Mm-hmm. And it is just unbelievable how many hours, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of hours, are wasted every single year by organizations and then what you had mentioned about just giving one-year grants means that many organizations just cannot plan for the future. 
And the heartbreaking reality is that for many nonprofits, they don't know if they can pay their staff three months from now. Right. Mm. Or if they can hire, if they can keep a staff next year, even an amazing staff. Mm. How do you plan for the future? How do you address homelessness and poverty and racism when you can't plan because you have no financial stability whatsoever? Right. And I do think we need to talk about just the differences between progressive funders and conservative funders because conservative funders do not act this way. Well, and also you talk about this year to year. I mean, if you take that same analogy and apply it to a marriage, if I told my wife, you know, I'm going to marry you, but I'm going to, we'll see how it goes after, you know, just for one year. And I can't possibly continue that the next year. We'll reintroduce ourselves the third year just to see if we still want to, you know, do that. Like you say, there's no way. I like, I like that. There's no way you can create a, a long term relationship. You can't afford, you can't, you can't, how do you bring kids into that kind of relationship? And I've seen a lot of them. Do that. We're fun one year, yes, uh, no the following year. You started to talk about the difference between progressives and uh, conservative funders. Yeah, this is something I've, I've been talking about and really trying to get people to, to understand. That many of the challenges that we, that we are very frustrated with have been long-standing challenges, but they're concentrated among progressive foundations. Conservative foundations fund completely opposite. They fund as, as if you're actual partners, long-term partners, which means that it could be two or three decades that they would fund you. Wow. And the funding is unrestricted, usually. And you, you trust that the, the people that you are working with know what they are doing. Now, you don't want to micromanage them. You want them to be able to do whatever they think is necessary to get the goals done. On the progressive side, it's the opposite. It's kind of like the way society treats poor people. Like, we, we want to help you, but we don't trust you with the money that we're giving you. So here are things that you can buy with food stamps. You can buy this type of food. You can't buy this type of food. Mm-hmm. You can't buy diapers with the money that we give you. And when you reach a certain point where you might break out of poverty, we're going to remove your benefits. This is how we are treated mm-hmm. by progressive foundations in this sector. And not, not very progressive. We don't, it's like so much micromanaging. And it's it's incredibly ineffective. So so Vu, let me ask this real quickly. The there I think part of the issue right now with the public in general has been that there's been a lot of negative press about uh, nonprofits specifically. Uh, we've had a run of that. Honestly, since probably nine eleven, there's been a run of this negative narrative about nonprofits and how they're spending their money. What, what is kind of your perspective on that? Well, yeah, there's always this narrative about how we spend and, and a, a few problems. One is that we put up with it. We tend to attract really nice, smart, extremely good-looking people to the sector. All of us, uh, all of of us that, are we those. We just put up with this bullshit. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't actually put up a fight. I actually talked to an executive director who, who told me that she was terrified because in her city, every year around Christmas time, the local newspaper would publish a list of the 10 nonprofits with the highest overhead rate. Uh, and she yeah. says, I'm just terrified that our organization is going to uh, wound up being on this, on this list. And I said, well, why are you, why are you putting up with this bullshit? Why yeah. don't you get a bunch of other nonprofits together and write a counter argument, uh, write, a, write an op-ed and saying that this list is crap. Mm-hmm. But instead, we just play within the system. To use a kind of a famous example, the Coney 2012, um, they were under a lot of pressure because of how much money was not spent to program services. But again, 
despite the fact that they had this glorious, you know, ascent and this spectacular descent, you know, in the form of their, you know, their founder, you know, running naked in California, whatever it was. There was, <laughs> oh, there yeah, was that. oh, yeah, that. <laughs> there was that. But, 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 but even when they were talking about that, I mean, the type of organizations that they were was an advocacy kind of organization. They had to spend a lot on media. And what they did, they did a lot of a raising awareness. And were you to take away and were you to not really understand what it is that that organization did versus, say, a therapeutic foster care program that has much more in program services? I think a lot of people just miss the nuance of what one nonprofit looks like versus another. Yeah, people are, uh, they have a lot of misconceptions. And it's not helped that we don't have a lot of representation uh, in the media. Mm. There's 20 shows about baking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's barely any shows. I think the probably the most accurate show about nonprofit is Insecure on HBO with Issa Rae. Yeah. There's a nonprofit there called We Got Y'all. <laughs> really great. But that's really about the only representation that is somewhat accurate about mm-hmm. the nonprofit sector. We are 10% of the workforce, and we don't have any representation in the media. Well, I think that's why we resonate with you. The fact that you know people who cook or the people who play a game have a higher celebrity status than some of the folks in the nonprofit sector who are actually changing the equation for millions of lives. Like, really? Those aren't our rock stars? It's been perpetuated that content media about nonprofits is agenda-driven, boring as hell, something you don't want to watch. Well, here here's another dirty little secret. Our show, The Good Road, while it's uh – it's really a show about people doing good, but we have to couch it around a travel show. And that's how we suck you in. Craig and I have to drink an awful lot of crazy stuff in Africa for you to watch this. But in the end, you're, you're going to get your medicine and it's not going to feel like you got your medicine. So we dupe you into like watching this stupid show. Vu, you have I, I I know that you've got this kind of crazy idea. I don't know where it comes from. It's probably all of the stress of uh, being an ED for 13 years or whatever, waking up in the middle of the night and saying, "What else can I do?" But I know you have this crazy idea of doing some kind of sitcommy comedy bit. Tell me a little bit about what's that dream look like. I would love to have be a, a sketch comedy show about nonprofit work. <laughs> I love It'll be it. Hilarious as hell, and uh, it'll be about all the fun and frustrations of nonprofit work and short segments and that eventually will be sold to Netflix. There you go. All right. And then I can retire. (laughs) There you go. Well, now we're back to money. It's all about the money. In fact, we have... It's all about the money. Yeah. That's that's kind of what I'm hoping. And the the thing is that we actually, when we describe an organization that's out there doing good, we use the word profit in it. We call it a non-profit. Why the hell do you have to have the word profit? Why can't we call it anything else? Well, and and by the way, Vu, uh, you are not on a wrong path in a lot of ways because... One of my very close friends here is an actor, Alan Sater, and for many years, he was the face of Child Fund. And both uh, Saturday Night Live did a sketch about his whole his whole identity, and uh, Key and Peele did a sketch, and they're both hilarious. So everybody kind of gets it. I think the public would respond very well to a comedy sketch about nonprofits. Do you have a title for this thing, Vu? Is it oh, na- no, no, naked no. and afraid I, uh, and non-profity? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Well, make us make us feel better about the coronavirus. On your latest blog, you had some kind of uh, how to stay, you know, safe or something. Can you can you make it funny? What's your best joke about the coronavirus? I know, I'm not so sure right now it would be the appropriate time to talk about the coronavirus. Vu, you've been, it's been a pleasure talking to awesome. you. I, I, we look forward to it. We're going to continue to promote the heck out of the stuff that you're doing, and thanks for sitting in on Philanthropology. And something tells us we're going to be uh, connected long-term, so we, we look forward to future visits with you. Oh, thank you, Earl and Craig, for having me. I awesome. uh, really appreciate our conversation, and I look forward to having more of them. This episode of Philanthropology has been made possible by Advanced Micro Devices. AMD, they're in our tribe of do-gooders, and we're excited to have them along on this journey of doing good in the world. AMD is helping solve the world's toughest and most interesting challenges around climate action, quality education and good health, and well-being. Tomorrow's breakthroughs start with the determination and inspiration of today. Trust us, if you're going to do good, you need some smart people in your tribe. (laughs) Yeah, people smarter than you and me for sure. So we want to wrap up this first season with the top 10 learnings from the entire season. Number 10. So the challenge in going deep on a topic in a podcast about philanthropology or philanthropy is that you really run the risk of getting way into the weeds on issues that are super weighty and that really quite aren't really compelling to most of us. Yeah. So when we started down the road of exploring the debate between spending more of your philanthropy dollars on education versus healthcare, uh, I won't lie. I was concerned that you know, it might not be as accessible to a broader audience. Yeah, and yet we we explored a seemingly dull topic with an outspoken Irish Catholic missionary who had left the world of money and cash, and he was a commodities broker with Dreyfus, so he gave it all up to develop a K-12 through school in Haiti. Yeah, and his, his at times controversial perspective was pretty powerful and interesting. It makes the work of education that's not sexy, sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is number nine. Number nine. So one of the fun things about philanthropology is exploring topics that you initially think are about one issue, then realizing that they go much, much deeper into details, and it's a broader topic and it's something much heavier. Yeah, it shifts. That's exactly what happened on the episode that we started out. We originally thought we were going to do an anti-poaching discussion, and then everything flipped to a piece about ethics and killing animals. Yeah, and I, I for a while I kept ta- calling it the anti-poaching, and then we kind of uh, took on this deeper, much bigger discussion about the the whole thing of animal ethics. Yeah, and, and we had a kind of a similar shift when we started down the road of having an episode that we were going to really talk about the white savior complex, where you know you and I learned something about something we had never talked about before, which was white savior films. So all of a sudden the white savior complex thing became a white savior film it's super interesting and kind of new yep so and then number eight number eight as a companion piece to the good road uh one of the things that we wanted to offer up to the listeners is a way to give them insider content related to the production of the show so so some of y'all probably tuned out if you weren't really into the topic but i think there's a ton of people who were super excited about this topic of virtual reality yeah and its ability to really convey stories actually i had a lot of people People surprisingly hit me up um, because when Mark Lambert took us really deep into the topic of VR uh, and what its role is, as the quote says, the empathy machine, people loved it. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, it's kind of cool because you get some behind the scenes stuff of what it was like to, to do the VR shoot when we did our 2D shoot in both Thailand and Myanmar. Correction, Craig. In that episode, we're going to talk about it as shooting 2D content on a primarily VR shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, true that. 
<laughs> All right, the number seven. Not every episode topic seems at face value like it would be super interesting. I think we said that before. <laughs> yeah, I guess. You're boring me already. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 well, you know, I talk, talked about the education one. Uh, the other little surprise nugget was from the executive principal at a school in Nashville called Hunters Lane, Dr. Susan Kessler. And um, mm-hmm. there were some fun surprises in that particular interview. Yeah, those Dr. Kessler, she's in front of the U.S. Congress, and she's, you know, trying to defend, you know, the funding for schools. And there was this overall, you know, feeling that there were these low-performing schools, and she called them out. She just said, you know what, I wouldn't use that term at all, low-performing schools, (laughs) because schools aren't low-performing. She's talking about students, and you wouldn't use that relationship of low-performing students any more than you would call you guys, low-performing politicians. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> laughing. It's so funny. All right. So they knew there. <laughs> number six. Number six. Well, actually, we kicked it off right away with episode one when we talked about, you know, how dangerous this doing good is. I don't think people really know. So we started by this interview with Nick McDonald, who's a seasoned nonprofit, you know, warrior. Yeah. Nick talks about his long tenure uh, working for different NGOs, which is also called non-governmental organizations. I think our favorite story is when Nick was talking about when he was on Larium, which is this anti-malarial drug, and he kept having these paranoid dreams, which were actually nightmares, where people were trying to kill him. And then one morning, he woke up to one of those dreams, and he realized, (laughs) hey, it's not just this uh, paranoid dream. People are actually trying to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Number five. Number five, technology and philanthropy. Those are two words that, when combined, I don't think people knew much about. And I think the interesting thing for us, you know, on the TV show as well, is that technology is really heavily a part of the world of philanthropy. Yeah, I don't think you can do a lot of good in the world without it. So whether it's anti-poaching to education, technology plays this key role in making the world a better place. And and one of the fun things we were able to do is to talk to Skip Rizzo um, on one of the podcasts about the you know the whole VR thing as it helps people. Um, so Earl tell yeah his work Skip's work with combat veterans and using VR to help them kind of overcome that PTSD was super fascinating. It's just another way that technology makes a difference. So number four, yeah. So we've already referenced the uh, the show about the white savior complex. Yeah, two white guys. I mean, we got this every single time. We got it not even that long ago when we were pitching our show to a a really large software company. And they look at it and they say, there's two white guys. It's weird and it's awkward to even address the topics with people that are from the space. But fortunately, a lot of people were gracious. They gave us a huge pass. And I I feel like we did a pretty good, uh, you know, equal coverage of just the topics and the issues. Um, one of my favorite things, though, was uh, talking to Decino D's and John Eads at Light of the Village. Right. Yeah, I mean, Light of the Village, it's a it's a all African-American community. And John Eads has been there for, you know, however long, 16, 18 years or something like that. And, you know, no one no one in that community or in that area sees the race. Yep. So it's that's it's an inspiration for both of us. 
Yep. So number three. Number three. Well, we opened the season with our director, Andy Dunsing, and I have to say that I absolutely love finding out things about Andy because he went with us on this big trek from Nairobi out to, you know, Tanzania uh, on the Zanzibar archipelago. And I really had no idea how much fears he had about flying and some of the others, but here he is <laughs> camping in these cheap tents among the big game in, Af- in Kenya. And the part that was so interesting, Earl, and I know this is the same for you. In the podcast, we started talking. He tells this story about the fact that when he went to get his yellow fever shot, he was mm-hmm. kind of too late. Um, right. <laughs> so the nurse was like, yeah, you're kind of too late, but we got to give it to yeah, you, anyway. when are you. She's like, when are you going to travel? Well, I'm traveling in two weeks. Well, it's going to take a month for this to take effect. And he's like, <laughs> oops. So you need, it to, uh, you need to get the shot to get in the country. It's not going to work anyway, you know, even if you do get it. So how did we not know that story? We need to take better care of our people. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> All right. And then number two. So I can't say enough good things about our, our uh, interview with Stacy Bear. Stacy is such a kind and generous soul. Yeah, he, he really is one of those really fun guys to hear talk. And if you see him in person, he's this striking character that looks like a big old Viking. His career choice being in the military really required him to be this kind of big warrior. Yeah, you it, know, but, it, it starts out kind of rough, but, you know, in terms of just mm-hmm. the... The intensity, um, but hearing his story about combat, um, you might never know that this massive guy um, is just really a soft side. And, and the nonprofit he started was super cool. So, number one. Number one, a kangaroo has three vaginas. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> And this is funny in light of, you know, today with Joe Exotic and Tiger King and all this others, there's this whole thing about killing animals or preserving them and things like that. Well, we did this whole deal with uh, <laughs> with Philip Glass out in uh, in West Texas. And, um, and, you know, we found out that while kangaroos are protected in their indigenous town, you know, homes down under in Australia, out in the bush of West Texas, there's a group of hunters that can shoot them for sport. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of our uh, favorite and yet most disturbing episodes. Yeah, and there's a ton to consider about ethics and killing. So if you guys liked, you know, Tiger King on Netflix, then or you like this whole Joe Exotic story, then take a listen to that episode and you're, you'll see it in a whole new light. Philanthropology is brought to you by First Republic. Since 1985, First Republic has had just one goal, deliver extraordinary service that always goes beyond client expectations. Because no two clients are alike, First Republic designs financial solutions for individuals and businesses that are customized to help meet your needs and goals. Reach out today and you'll be connected with a dedicated banker who will be your primary point of contact throughout your relationship with the bank. You can call or email your banker at any time for advice or to get help with whatever arises. Because they understand your total financial picture, your banker can recommend the services and products that are best suited to you or your business. And they're committed to staying objective, so it's always about what makes sense for you at every stage and not about what's most profitable. If you're ready to discover how a personalized approach to banking can make a meaningful difference in your personal and business outcomes, visit firstrepublic.com to learn more. Member FDIC. Okay, so we really want to say thank you to our listeners. You guys are part of our tribe, and we just love bringing you these stories and the people who are the do-gooders around the world just like you. Yeah, we're going to bring back season two, and it's going to be better than the first one. And rest assured, you're going to meet a lot more interesting people and hear a lot more interesting topics, and sometimes they're going to be controversial. 
Yeah, and and please make sure that you check out our TV show, The Good Road. Uh, It's on a PBS TV station near you. That's right. And thanks for making the first season of Philanthropology a huge success. And don't forget to check out the episodes that you may have missed because there's a lot. Yeah, so just stay with us at philanthropology.tv. So that's philanthropology.tv. And be part of our team by commenting and sharing your favorite moments on Philanthropology with your friends and family. So until season two, stay tuned and make sure to join us on the boob tube for The Good Road. (laughs) Follow along the show at thegoodroad.tv. Finally, sticking with tradition, make sure to listen to this episode's road trip immediately after the show credits. The Philanthropology Podcast is recorded at In Your Ear Studios in Richmond, Virginia. With direction from producer Carlos Chafin, Engineering help from Andrea Steffel, soon to be Bukite. Earl and I also get creative direction from Andy Dunsing, the Good Road Public Television Show. The theme music for Philanthropology was created by Jordan Martin of the band Door Mountain and can be found on iTunes. We also want to thank all of our do-gooders who gave us their time, support, and gray matter. And finally, we want to thank our original investors in all of this, our wives and kids specifically our wives who put up with us, Pam Bridges and Erica Martin. And to all the girls I've loved before. (laughs) Yeah, there's actually, there's a funny, uh, it's Jack Whitehall and it's Travels with My Dad. And that's the first time I ran across this British guy from Manchester, England, who's uh, now a monk in Thailand. And we had a good friend, uh, Jun, who um, who said, "Hey, you know, if you want to interview a monk, you know, I've got a guy for you." I think I even asked them, Craig, did yeah. he speak English? But I don't think he disclosed that he was this British guy yeah. at all. Yeah. Until well, we got there. No, we show up, and here's this this really tall uh, Caucasian guy with a British accent. <laughs> right. He's bald. He's got the saffron robes, and then it's, it it just hit me. I've seen a movie with him in. So if you get a chance, there was this yeah. really bizarre bit where he's at this temple in Thailand. There's these, you know, statues of people getting disemboweled and stuff, and it's a children's <laughs> playground around the temple. Anyway, so bizarre. Well, but what and, was and, and and since he had had that experience, uh, so he uh-huh. was kind of ready for us, and he and he, and he wanted, you know, payment. Basically, he's like, the other crew didn't do anything, and I'm like, uh, well, you know, we don't pay our subjects. Sorry. So the, right. <laughs> Then, then he asked for a very unusual bit. Um, yeah, he wanted black licorice. So I guess as a kid growing up in Manchester, England, he goes, he he recalls that was one of the things he loved as a child. Now, <clears throat> monks can't really receive payment uh, in forms of cash and things like that for what the, what it is that they do. There's always these offerings that are made. And if you know anything about Thai monks, in the early mornings around Bangkok and most of uh, Southeast Asia, the monks will parade through, walk through the streets, and offer the... Um, adherents, the believers, the opportunity to provide alms or food. To make merit, you know, so yeah. it's really yeah to to make merit on that. And apparently, no one in Thailand is giving black licorice out in these early mornings. It's rice and fish and whatever. <laughs>